In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by my colleague James Salzer to talk about the Georgia governor's race. How's it going, James? Great. You, are you excited? The election day on May 22nd is almost finally Cannot here. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. <laughs> well, let's talk about the, the race overall. We've got seven candidates. This is a big, huge number of candidates for races. Think about it. From In 2014, we had an incumbent governor who faced two Republican challengers, and we had a Democrat, Jason Carter, who faced zero. Yeah, we essentially had no race in 2014 in the primary. Yeah, uh, we've gone from that to an overcrowded. Yeah, this is like, yeah, this is a little bit more similar to 2010 when we had, you know, the open seat and... We had like 350,000 candidates. Yeah, and that race, if you recall, former Governor Roy Barnes steamrolled his opposition. Even though he had four four or five Democrats running against him, he ended up winning about 60% of the vote and easily won without a, a, a runoff. But the Republican side got very bitter and very unpredictable. John Oxendine came in as the front runner, and what happened to him? Yeah, yeah he, <laughs> he, he was like the front runner until he won, because he was the front runner until till near the end of the race. He'd raised the most money. You know, he had all those insurance connections from the years in the insurance industry are typically big donors. And what did he finish? Fourth, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was a race of it. I don't know that any of us really could have predicted who was going to, you know, come out ahead. So it was interesting that Governor Deal ended up winning it. Yeah, and that was a, that was a Governor Deal and Karen Handel, of course, who's now the sixth district U.S. representative up in uh, up in the Northern Burbs, had a um, had a really bitter runoff. But I'm curious because I didn't cover I covered it. I covered the race sort of from a step back way. Did did reporters, did it seem, you know, at this point in that race, like with two weeks to go, did it seem like Oxenide was already falling out? Yeah, there was, there was. I mean, we were hearing, we were hearing um, kind of internal polling and that kind of stuff that, that showed, you know, maybe he wasn't going to, I mean, initially it was like who was going to run against Oxenide in the runoff mm-hmm. for quite a while. Um, but once we got closer, it seemed like closer we got to the election, the more squishy, it was, it was, yeah, it was. It, the more it was not going to be his race necessarily. Well, the front runner in the Republicans on this race all along has been Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, who is was at around forty percent in the AJC polls and every other public and private poll that that we've seen. He's either in the high thirties or, or low forties, and all his opponents kind of already conceding that he'll be um, a, barring a huge epic, really, I mean, seriously, epic collapse. Uh, he'll be the uh, the number one finisher. That's kind of the difference between uh, one of the differences between ten and and um, and this time around is 
the lieutenant governor was uh, anointed almost right away by the state house crowd, by the lobbyists, by the kind of the big institutional Republican donors um, at the big PACs as the as almost as if he's an incumbent. Mm-hmm. When he is an incumbent lieutenant governor, he's run for you know he's run what three elections, three statewide elections. Yeah. But it it's interesting the, the difference was in that race. Nobody went in. You know, at that level, and and um, um, that's really showed at the fundraisers. And you so. reported the other day that he's now raised more than seven million, well over seven million dollars, right. mostly from connected lobbyists, politicians, state house interests, the people who usually try to back the winner early. Yeah, yeah, those are the people who uh, backed Governor Dale in two thousand fourteen when he was running for re-election. Uh, Sonny Perdue in two thousand six when he was running for election. Roy Barnes when he was running mm-hmm. for election in two thousand two. So yeah, those are. Those are the people you kind of want on your team if you're going to build a big uh, fundraising base. Now, at the same time, early on, it seemed like Cagles and his allies thought they had maybe an outside shot about getting 50 plus one, 50 percent plus one and avoiding what, what will be a really grueling nine week runoff. Now, though, it seems like they're sort of tempering their expectations with them at the 40s, low 40s and, or high 30s in these polls. Um, even their outside groups are now saying very publicly, these are outside groups that have no connection, no official connection with the campaign, but who do things to support Cagle. Um, one of the main outside groups said, basically, uh, their polling matches with the AJC polling that showed Cagle at 40. That it's too much too much of a hoe, uh, too much of a big gap to fill to get them to 50 plus one. So they might start focusing on shaping the race for number two. And that still is a wide open race yeah. between two principal candidates Secretary of State Brian Kemp and former Senator, State Senator Hunter Hill. Right. And and um, you would also throw Clay Tippins in there just because his fundraising ability. Mm-hmm. He's He, of the of the the three kind of second-tier candidates in that race, or, or the people trying to get into the runoff, um, in in the kind of the big money donors since since uh, beginning of April, Tippins actually raised more than the other two. Mm-hmm. Um, he raises a lot of um, money, kind of in the money business interests. Uh, big uh, executives are Buckhead and North Atlanta kind of money. And he needs that money because he's an outsider businessman. But usually when you see outsider businessmen in Georgia or wherever, they're the businessmen who can put millions of dollars into their okay. campaign. Guy Milner, Michael Coles. Even Jim Barksdale, the, the failed Democratic Senate candidate from 2016, were able to put a lot of money into their campaign. And while Clay Tippins is wealthy, he is not a mega, mega, right. mega millionaire. He doesn't have the type of personal wealth that he can fund his own campaign, and he doesn't like have, David and, Perdue. Yeah, I was just going to say, and he doesn't have the – the other difference is, you know, David Perdue was running um, as a relative of a, a very uh, – one time very popular governor of the state. So he had a name. I mean, it's, it wasn't, you know, it's not quite like, you know, Talmadge or something yeah. like that. But, I mean, it, it still was a name that, particularly in Republican primary, people knew. I'm not sure uh, Tippins has, you know, he doesn't have that name ID. Yeah, and, and Tippins also ran that, that famous uh, Benedict Arnold ad uh, right. claiming the Hunter Hill, who, who, like Tippins, is also a military veteran, was a traitor to the nation because – uh, because of his gun stance, uh, he he said at a debate earlier this year that he supported. He suggested he supported raising the minimum age to buy assault weapons from 18 to 21. He quickly backtracked on that, but um, a lot of Republicans out there are saying the damage has been done. Yeah. Um, there's a gun group, um, Georgia Carry. Um, Dot, dot org that said they strongly oppose Hunter Hill because of that stance, and and Clay Tippins tried to sort of ride on that that uh, that uh, that that narrative right there, but a lot of a lot of Republicans 
pushed back on that pretty hard, saying, well, how dare you do that? Well, it's, it's pretty hard to 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 um, make the argument someone's a traitor when on their website, Hunter Hill's website, he's got all these photos of him, um, you know, walking point in the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, you know. He's a West Point grad who uh, was an Army Airborne Ranger who had combat tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq, came back and ran for state senate. And uh, his main pitch, he's trying to take that conservative lane away from Casey Cagle, trying to depict Cagle as the sort of squishy moderate. I'm using the word squishy twice now. Um, <laughs> and his main pitch is one that he says he will eliminate the state income tax. And that is a huge amount of revenue to make up. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, and it's, it's, an, it's an argument that's been made over and over again. The, the reality is if you don't, if you didn't, if you eliminated the state income tax, you'd have come up with about $10 billion in, in, uh, in uh, revenue for mm-hmm. the state, you know, unless you're going to you know, stop funding education or something like that. Um, and so you would have to either dramatically raise the sales tax, like we'd have like, I don't know, 15% sales tax in the state, um, or you would have to, which is, which is actually easier to do than to broaden, quote, broaden the base, which means you, you essentially charge it on everything from food to legal services to you know, just everything you can think of, you pay a sales tax on. And that, that, that actually has been debated before. And that is the most difficult thing in the world to do because there's lobbyists for every one of those interests exactly. that will stop you from doing it. And that's kind of exactly what, what Hunter Hill's campaign is about. He wants to expand that base and charge sales tax for more services and more goods that aren't charged for right now. At the same time, he talks about cutting, significantly cutting, he hasn't given a number, but significantly cutting the state budget to all but core interests like transportation and security and and uh, education. But you get nothing out of that. I mean, the, the core interests that he's talking about are, are things that are, that's the like vast majority of budget. I mean, it'd be, it'd be I, I shouldn't say you get nothing, but I mean, you you wouldn't get you know twenty percent savings or whatever by doing that. And at the same time, he talks about doubling transportation funding. So I don't know. <laughs> Other Republicans say there's he has fuzzy math and they kind of roll their eyes. Uh, Clay Tippins has been one of the most aggressive about this, saying there's no way this will ever happen. And Casey Cagle has much more modest tax plans. He talks about uh, cutting taxes a hundred million dollars. You know, in his in the opening days of his if, if he's elected of, of the legislative session, um, which was as we've seen can be done uh, pretty with, easily. With a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other uh, big candidate out there is Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who's in a statistical tie with Hunter Hill in a lot of these polls, and he's been getting a lot of attention for some very very uh, controversial ads. Provocative. I'd say. Provocative. Yeah, That's right, the word right. we use. The first one showed him. Uh, It showed him cleaning out a shotgun next to a young man who was purportedly trying to date his his daughter. And uh, he's asked about, uh, you know, what two things should I remember? And the the young man says something like, uh, well, respect uh, respect for your daughter and respect for the Second Amendment. And Brian Kemp says exactly. And, you know, it shows him kind of loading the shotgun and pointing it in his general direction. The second ad... Uh, which is which again also like the first one got a ton of outrage and a ton of uh, national media attention. Uh, shows him with explosions in the background talking about ripping up regulations and a chainsaw when he says I'm going to take this to the bureaucracy in Atlanta. And then at the end it shows him going into his pickup truck and says that in his words he'll you know he'll round up criminal illegals illegal aliens with his pickup truck himself if he has to. Yeah, that sounds like a scene from Machete, the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it it's you know we reported this in the AJC. It is it's uh, uh, 
a smart move to play the bass. Um, and and you know we talked to even people running for Secretary of State and Insurance Commissioner and all these other seats that have nothing to do will, will have nothing to do with policy on on uh, either uh, expanding gun rights or limiting gun rights. Um, but they still get asked about it. So I mean, if they're not, they wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't a huge issue mm-hmm. in the to the to the base of the Republican voters. So you know, I guess that's smart. And their polling NR shows the NRA has unbelievable, you know, very high standing among Republican voters. And the people who vote on May twenty second in either of these primaries tend to be the hardest core, either liberals on the Democratic side or conservatives on the Republican side. These are the people who really, you know, the general election is going to be much more broad. You know, you're going to have a lot more moderates and independents and others who, who, who are, you know, only tangentially interested in the race. But in this primary, you're going to have the very core conservatives voting in the Republican primary, and those are the people who hold Second Amendment rights on a pedestal. Just as you are in the Democratic primary, we're probably going to have the most liberal voters uh, going to the polls. I mean, you know, neither, neither one of these sides are going to have uh, – uh, parties are going to have huge turnout, so you need to get people – on the to extreme on the extremes to be on your side, and that's a good segue to the Democratic side of the race, where we have former House Minority Leader Stacey Abrams and former State Representative Stacey Evans both battling it out for the Democratic nomination. Uh, both of them were state legislators who served together. Both of them are young lawyers. Uh, both of them come from very scrappy, poor backgrounds, and they have both inspiring stories of how they kind of overcame the odds and became leaders in their communities. Uh, Stacey Abrams is running at, to be the first African-American female governor in the nation's history. And Stacey Evans would have history, too. She would be the first female governor in Georgia history. Right. And it's a really bitter battle so far, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's started out as a, uh, I think the, the Evans campaign started out hitting almost immediately on this issue of the Hope Scholarship mm-hmm. in 2011. And, and there's been some... Um, fuzzy uh, information out, I think, on that issue, because it, it, the, the Hope Scholarship has had a couple of different um, uh, changes made to it over the years because the amount of money coming in um, while growing from the lottery has not been growing at a fast enough rate to continue paying the full... To keep up with um, the demand. Right, right. I mean, uh, uh, Stacey Evans would dispute that, I think, but um, and, and say we could still do it, but the you know, I've, I've, over the years, I've looked at the math on it, and it, and it, it was kind of problematic. Um, I'm not sure 2011 was exactly the time they needed to, but they may have. I, I don't remember at the time. But but so um, the 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 highlighted issue, at least in Evans's case, is that that um, that Stacey Abrams uh, worked with Republicans um, and changed uh, the Hope Scholarship. Um, in such a way that not everybody got the same, you know, they, they didn't get the same benefits that they had gotten or, or, or could get it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stacey Abrams has made the argument that, you know, I, I, did, I did, I helped save the program, essentially. Um, it, you know, may or may not be around today if it weren't for the fact that we had to make these changes to the program. And that's the sort of fundamental rift in, in this race over, over, over policy is that, Stacey Evans said she would have resisted any sort of Republican changes. She would have voted no um, against this, like like many Senate Democrats did. The Senate right. Democrats ended up voting no. It still passed because Republicans have an overwhelming majority in both chambers. But Stacey Abrams said that by being in the negotiating table with Governor Deal and other Republicans, she was able to stave off deeper cuts. 
uh, and other changes that, that maybe would have set a, uh, an SAT requirement, which would have made it a lot harder for, for some students, especially those who don't test as well, especially those from lower-income communities who might have the, not have the same uh, uh, testing regimens uh, and test training that, that people in more affluent communities have. Um, so she says that. Stacy Evans says it was nothing short of a betrayal. That's been the dominant, one of the dominant policy issues. The other one, which is enduringly fascinating to me, is the gun issue. Because again, we're coming from, we're coming from a generation of democratic traditional strategy that is that is run to the center, if not to the right, to on the guns. right. Yeah. I mean, Roy Barnes got the NRA's endorsement in '98 and 2002. So did Zell Miller during his runs for governor. Jason Carter called himself a J, an NRA Democrat. And now we're seeing Democrats shift very far to the other direction. And both these candidates uh, are both calling for different gun control restrictions. And Stacey Abrams is hitting Stacey Evans because Stacey Abrams had an F from the NRA and Stacey Evans only has a D. <laughs> so that is how things have changed so far on the gun issue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean part of it is, again, they're, they're trying to play to the, to the liberal base um, in the in the primary, but the the other thing is obviously things have changed. I mean, the the climate has mm-hmm. our own polling shows the climate has changed on those issues because of the school shootings and the other various sundry massacres that have happened, and the overall Trump effect. I mean, another fascinating thing about Democratic politics is we we've all we've just spent the last couple of minutes talking about the Republican race to the right. Democrats never really had it haven't really had a real statewide race to the left until now. Think about it. Jason Carter ran alone. He ran as a moderate. Michelle Nunn definitely ran as a moderate in 2014, um, trying to steal sort of the same playbook that her her father, former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn, used. Roy Barnes, when he ran uh, in 98, 2002, and 2010, had, you know, there was a few liberal left-leaning policies, but mostly ran on a centristish campaign. Now you've got two candidates on the, on, the, on the Democratic side, who are both kind of pushing each other to the left on issues, not just Medicaid expansion, which most, which Jason Carter supported, but on gun control, on criminal justice reforms. Right. They both want to decriminalize marijuana. Um, yeah, they, um, neither one of them would would have gotten you know more than about twenty percent in the Democratic primary of nineteen ninety eight or or, or ninety four. But they would tell you, you know, truthfully, um, that. This isn't ninety eight or ninety four. I yeah. mean that, that that the world has changed dramatically since then, and and so um, has the politics, so has the political makeup of the state, and so has the demographics of the state. So there are many, you know, things that are different. And aside from the policy shift, um, there's also obviously a lot of national attention on this race. Stacey Abrams has turned into something of a national figure. She spoke uh, at the Democratic National Convention. She's got about what do you think, seventy-ish percent of her money, uh, you know, so, yeah, of, from of, out of, of state. The, of, the, of the high rollers or the people that are giving more than a thousand dollars a pop, it's probably seventy. Yeah, so more than two-thirds of her money is from out of state. A lot, of, a lot of national write-ups in the national media. Stacey Evans is out there saying, "Hey, don't forget about me." You know, I, she's got most of her, her her money from in-state. She's also pumped. Uh, more than $1.3 million of her own money into the race. 1.5. James, sorry, (laughs) 1.5. He just wrote this. I should know this. 1.5 million of her own money. So she's able to sort of help self-finance her campaign. Um, And she's also trying to get a lot of elected black leaders. Um, She just had a recently had a press conference with Sherry Boston, who's the district attorney in DeKalb County, the the most populous African-American county and majority black county in the state. Um, and she's trying to sort of leverage her black elected officials' uh, leader support 
trying to remind folks that, you know, hey, you know, there's history on this side too. But it's going to be a, a, a tough argument to make. It's a tough sell. When uh, the majority of the Democratic electorate is African American, yeah, I mean she's I mean, she's worked really hard to get um, a, a disinfected former um, um, state legislators or legislators um, um, who um, didn't, for whatever reason, either because they thought the Stacey, Stacey Abrams um, worked too much with Republicans or. You know, personally, I, whatever whatever the the reasons, she's worked hard at, at getting those people to um, support her. Uh, Stacey Abrams got plenty of people, you know, plenty of legislators that she can you know bring up on her own that who also support her. So it's you know, the other big huge divide in this race is the strategic divide. Um, because you have two candidates who are very open about their very different strategies. And again, an, another departure from, from, from Democratic past can, candidacies in Georgia. You've got Stacey Evans, who is hewing to traditional Democratic strategy, which is basically, let's try to win back the moderate suburbanites, some, maybe some rural white uh, workers who used to vote Democratic, who've gone over to the Republican side of the fold, try to win them back, maybe by adding Trump to the argument, maybe by saying the Republicans are too conservative for a changing Georgia, uh, making the economic development argument, um, appealing to, to suburban white women who, like her, live in the, 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 the Atlanta suburbs. Um, that's a huge trove of voters. Stacey Abrams says basically that's, that's insanity, that it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. She says that d- Democrats have tried that stat- strategy since Roy Barnes' 2002 defeat, She's going after a huge trove of voters. She says there's hundreds of thousands of left-leaning voters, mostly minorities, who rarely, if ever, cast ballots. And she's going after that trove. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Because it's, it's, you know, in both strategies are, um, in, are, are interesting, but they're taking bets. They're taking bets that may be long odds. I mean, converting people who have gone from voting Democratic in the 98 election to solidly Republican ever since, mm-hmm. essentially, and saying, you know, uh, I'm your candidate over here, Democrats remember us, is, is will be, you know, it'll be, it'll be tough. And um, I don't know how many of the hundreds of thousands of voters are, are, will actually get to the polls of that Stacey Abrams is counting on. I mean, it's the, same, it's the same conundrum for Stacey Abrams, which is how to convince an, a voter who, who, either a young voter and young, younger voters are the least likely to vote. I mean, as, as, as voters get older, they're more likely to cast ballots to vote or get someone who, you know, didn't vote in the 2016 election, which was the most heavily, right, whatever, right. popularized yeah. election that we've seen or didn't vote for Obama in 12 or 2008 to vote for her now. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a, a tough, tough. That's really a tough. It's going to be tough. Um, but she's spending the bulk of her money, yep. not on she's TV working. advertising, yeah. but yeah. on grassroots campaigning yeah. and trying to get folks out to the polls, and she had door knockers months ago going canvassing for her, and I was with some of them, and you'd hear, huh, there's an election on May? I thought it was November. <laughs> you hear that over and over and over again. Well, that's, that's what's interesting about that race probably as much as the Republican race is that the, the races that they're running are so based on a uh, on the, the base of the party that what do you do once, once you win the primary? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what kind of race do you run in November? 
And the only candidate, I'm glad you mentioned, the only candidate I've seen out on the campaign trail, and I've been with all these candidates for now, it seems like, well, more than a year now, um, who's running with one eye clearly on the general election, because he can afford to do that, is Casey Cagle. Cagle. He's in such a commanding position that when his Republican rivals are hitting him on the right saying, Casey Cagle won't won't adopt the state's toughest abortion, the nation's toughest abortion restrictions, or Casey Cagle won't, uh, won't cut the totally eliminate the state income tax. He says, "Yeah, I won't. I, I'm going to do." You know, he's also backtracked on some of those. He's backtracked on some, like yeah. constitutional carry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But on the state income tax yeah. and on abortion stuff, he states, "Like we already have tough abortion restrictions," is his line. And he says, "On the income tax, I'm still pushing for 100 million dollars in cuts. I, I don't think we need to go too much further than there for now." Uh, but you're right on gun issues in particular, because that's where he's the NRA has endorsed him, but other gun rights groups. I've either endorsed his opponents or are looking elsewhere. And so he was quoted in a, uh, in a piece on 11 Alive a few weeks ago saying that he, um, he opposed constitutional carry, which basically says you, you have the right to carry your sure. arms basically wherever you want. Um, he had to backtrack and say, after he said he, has, he opposed it, he had to say, nope, I'm for it. <laughs> That's the thing is, that, I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing about being lieutenant governor is you don't actually take any votes. So you, and, and you, there's no real way to prove whether you're, you supported a policy or not, in, in, unless you do something like you did with the uh, with Delta, mm-hmm. where you came around and said, you know, I'm not going to pass the ta- I'm not going to pass the tax break. For I will Delta. kill any tax right, break that right. helps Delta. It, it didn't help NRA, but I mean, there, there's a myriad of issues that he can say I'm for or against, and he has not had to take a vote since he was in the state senate. It is an interesting position to be in because, again, just like you said, and then he not only does can he avoid some of these contentious debates, but he also can say for any policy that's broadly accepted by the Georgia electorate, that he was part of it because as the president of the state senate, he let it go through. Oh, I'm sure Sal Miller did that more than once or twice. I mean, he served <laughs> 16 years as a lieutenant governor, and I'm sure there are plenty of things where, you know, he didn't have to come out on things. And he's tying himself very, very firmly to the state's most popular political figure, and it's not Donald Trump. It's not Barack Obama. It's, it's not, not Greg Bluestein. It's not me. It's not James Salzer. It is Governor Nathan Deal. Yep. And the AJC's poll showed 85% of Republicans give him a high approval rating and, a, and a, a, about half the Democrats, which if you had asked anyone seven years ago, uh, Republicans or Democrats, if he'd be in such high standing, there was concerns that from Democrats that he was uh, all sorts of things, that he was racist, that he was too conservative. And then Republicans were worried that he was a, he was this former Democratic congressman sure. who was coming into the office, and he wouldn't fight for their values. It's a, it's a it's a com- fairly common phenomena that that if you serve two terms, and you know unless the economy's in the tank, um, you know Governor Purdue didn't have the best of timing when he left because the uh, yeah unemployment was like eleven or twelve percent in Georgia because of the Great Recession. But I know I remember when Zell Miller left after eight years. I mean you know he could have. He could have run for emperor of the state, and you know, and and so uh, you know, Governor Deal hasn't had a lot of, particularly in his second term, has not had a lot of uh, controversy, and and the economy's been going well. I mean, he's saving money for the state. He's, I mean, he's putting money in the you know piggy bank of the state. He's, they just had a, a session where they cut you know, taxes, although not as big as they you know some of the politicians say they did. But, you know, they did a lot of things that were very popular. So it's Cut not taxes, really boost education funding. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, the, fact that they, the fact that they fully funded the formula is, you know, you, uh, voters are going to hear that like 100 billion times before <laughs> the end of November because every candidate is going to want to say, look what we did for education. 
um, and the tax cut. Same thing with the tax cut. Every, you know, you you're gonna you're gonna think that you're not gonna. The Georgians are gonna think that they they not only don't have to pay taxes, they're gonna get money back from the state, just handed to them by, the end of the, by November because everybody's gonna talk about you know what a great tax cutter they are. So um, the most telling thing to me about about that and, and deals popularity is that Michael Williams, who's a state senator, whose entire campaign is based on uh, attacking the Atlanta establishment, saying that career politicians are horrible and that and that basically everything that's under the gold dome isn't conservative enough for, for including the reporters, including <laughs> everything. Um, well, I asked him directly at one of the debates. Um, you know, other than religious liberty, which the governor vetoed, and we all we all know all the all the candidates for running for office are supportive in some form or fashion of religious liberty. So other than that veto, what's the one thing that Governor Deal did that you don't agree with? And Michael Williams' answer was, I would prefer not to answer that question. And then he pivoted to an attack on Casey Cagle. So, <laughs> so that shows you, you know, even, even the sort of, you know, strident, far-right, far running as the far-right conservatives aren't really touching Governor Deal right now. Right, 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 right. That's all for this latest edition of Politically Georgia Podcast. Please make sure to rate us, keep listening, and you can follow us on Twitter, at PoliticallyGA and at Bluestein. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.